0: This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. This is a UK Coaching podcast. My name's Tom Lally. I'm a senior coach developer at UK Coaching, uh, and I'm delighted today uh, to be joined on the pod by Anson Dorrance, a uh, legendary coach who has won many championships, uh, who has an incredible kind of range of accolades to his name, uh, which I won't even Attempt to go into now with, with fear of missing any out. Uh, but Anson, welcome to the podcast, and, and thanks for joining me today.
1: Tom, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me,
0: uh, Anson. One of the big themes that I'd love for us to dig into and, and talk about today on the call is is about leadership and and your experiences and influences around that throughout your your coaching career. But first of all, it would be brilliant if if you might just be able to tell us a little bit about your your coaching journey and where where it all started for you.
1: Well, uh, um, I was born and raised overseas. In fact, I'm a huge Anglophile because I was born in a British colony and spent a lot of my upbringing in British colonies. So I was born in Bombay, India. Uh, I had another sister born there, a brother born in Calcutta, another uh, brother born in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. We went from Bombay to Calcutta to Nairobi to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Then we went to Singapore where another uh, sister of mine was born. Then we came back to the United States for a very short stretch. And then we headed to Brussels, Belgium. And while we were there, my family sent me to a Swiss boarding school where I finished my uh, high school education. Uh, The first time I spent any really extended time in the United States was when I started attending college. So I'm a citizen of the world, uh, and a huge Anglophile. My historical mentor is Winston Churchill. Uh, I read every new book written about him. In fact, I'm reading two at the same time right now. Uh, And I absolutely love everything about the man. Um, And uh, for me, uh, he's been a huge influence in uh, everything I do, uh, because I do consider myself a citizen of the world. But I also feel like uh, uh, my relationship uh, with the English historically, but also in the way I was raised, uh, is also unique. And as you know, uh, for any aristocrat, uh, brought up in uh, uh, the British system, uh, uh, the sort of sports you play are the ones I played originally, which were rugby, you know, cricket and field hockey. Uh, soccer, of course, uh, you know, when I was growing up in these different places, uh, weren't for the upper class. Uh, and yet um, I ended up, you know, coaching soccer uh, and uh, fell in love with the game as a collegian at UNC um, and then um, had the ambition of basically becoming a a lawyer and working for my father's oil company. And um, while I was a law student, I was coaching the men at North Carolina. That was my first coaching gig. And I only accepted that position to help pay for law school. And then as I was finishing my degree, they extended me a women's team. I coached that for 10 years together. And then since uh, 89, I've just done the women collegiately. During eight years of that stretch, uh, I was coaching the US Women's National Team as a part-time, Uh, Coach Uh, originally when uh, they hired me uh, uh, They didn't really have a lot of money uh, as you know in the women's game back then So uh, I was hired as a part-timer. They extended me a chance to stay on as a full-timer I wasn't interested. uh, uh, I wanted to stay at a collegiate level, Uh, but that's sort of my uh, coaching journey Uh, uh, My father uh, wanted me to be his attorney and of course one day I came home told my poor wife who thought she was going to retire on a yacht in the Mediterranean but no, that wasn't the plan for our lives. I was going to be a soccer coach. And, uh, you know, to her credit, she pretended like uh, this is what I really wanted to do. And she supported me. She hasn't left me yet. So uh, <clears throat> those are all positive things. And and I've absolutely loved every day of this. And uh, even though uh, uh, I wanted to do what my father wanted me to do, I, I was a dutiful son. I love my father. I went to law school uh, on his recommendation. Uh, the family joke at the time is at least uh, when I became his corporate attorney for the oil empire he was building, I wouldn't have a tendency to steal from my own estate. Uh, so that was family humor at the time. Uh, and then uh, when I withdrew from law school with only six courses to finish my degree with, he was outrageously upset with me uh, and I understood it. But then when he saw that uh, how much I absolutely love this, he embraced it. Uh, and honestly i haven't looked back i have loved every aspect of what i've had a chance to do. I love everything about this game, and of course i'm near seventy and i'm I'm still enjoying it
0: that's amazing uh and And I can hear just in your voice Anson just the the passion that you have for coaching and 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 for the game um what 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 is it about coaching that's kept you doing it for so long what, what Why do you keep coming back every season for more?
1: Well, honestly, it's not just the, uh, the soccer side of it uh, for me. Um, what's really interesting about what I have an opportunity to, to do as a collegiate coach uh, is it's human development. And uh, honestly, uh, there are days when uh, <clears throat> the X's and O's aren't as thrilling as on other days. But one thing that never ceases to amaze me but also excite me is watching uh, these extraordinary young women that come in at the age of 17 and then graduate Uh, basically as uh, mature women, uh, that progression and being a part of that and a part of their lives in that respect for me is just a never-ending satisfaction. And then, of course, the cool thing that I have an opportunity to do is to watch the arc of their lives because our emphasis here at UNC um, isn't really football. It's uh, character development as a priority. The second priority is actually their academic success. And then finally, you know, we check the uh, the soccer box because uh, we certainly want to compete uh, every year in what we're doing on the field. But for me, what's <clears throat> wonderful is uh, my relationship with these extraordinary young women not just the four year relationship. Uh, I have extended relationships. And I mentioned uh, two of them to you. One, of course, is a part of the uh, English full team and Lucy bronze. I'm extraordinarily proud of what she's done with her uh, football life. And then Serena Wegman of course is now the new English coach. Uh, She also played for me and helped us win a championship, actually alongside Mia Hamm. And uh, uh, basically Lucy Bronze won a a national championship alongside Tobin Heath. And so a lot of the the former players I've had have gone on to do uh, extraordinary things in the game and also in their lives. We had a young woman that just finished a, a medical degree at Harvard, and now she's finishing an NBA at Stanford. Those are the two elite universities in the United States in those respective disciplines, so it's not just a soccer success that I celebrate with these young women. It's 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 successful lives. Uh, so uh, for me, that's that's the satisfaction. It's not just a football journey for me; it's a human one.
0: Do, do, you, do you know, Anson? There's there's been a few coaches who I've spoken to recently, uh, notably Joe Montemoro at Arsenal Women, and he he spoke in a, in a similar way around. Uh, not necessarily developing the player, but developing the person um, and it, it, it's It's really refreshing to hear that kind of come through with with everything that you say I, i'm sure'm I'm sure there's a lot of coaches listening really thinking about the relationships they have with the the players in their team or the athletes in their squad it, Is there something about what is it about developing that that close relationship that um, is really powerful and, and makes a big difference to developing people rather than just players?
1: Well, I have to be honest, when I started coaching, for me, it was just a chess match. You know, what system am I going to play? Who do I play where? You know, how do I do my substitution patterns? Uh, And originally, that's what it was. It was just a really interesting exercise in competition, how to win the game, you know, how to do this, how to do that, how to basically uh, organize a training session to go into the next match more competitive uh, and all those different uh, elements. But the uh, older I got, the more I appreciated it. that there was something else going on that uh, was actually more intriguing. Uh, and that is uh, the human element. And what's really interesting about our environment, especially the age group that I coach, the 17 to 21 to 22 year old, this is, these are transformational years of their lives. So what I have an extraordinary opportunity to do is through the context of our environments, and as anyone knows that wants to try to coach this game at an elite level, there are all kinds of stressors. Uh, you know, whether or not you start, how many minutes you get to play, whether or not you're developing, uh, how your team is succeeding. And obviously, morale's a lot higher if you're winning than if you're losing. I mean, there are all these different elements that put uh, all kinds of interesting uh, stresses on relationships across the board. But there's something to be said for, uh, you know, surviving a preseason and developing a relationship with your team after they've worked incredibly hard. And the sort of bond that goes in the uh, in the, the trenches when you're grinding it out to try to get fit or try to get to your uh, uh, potential. And that a, is, a, is a wonderfully bonding experience. And it's not just an athletic experience. It's a very human one. So there's so much in our game that uh, sort of drives us together in very positive ways. And a lot of that is the context of the training environment and the game itself. And so this is where the bonds begin. What I was telling my athletes is the way we developed the first United States uh, full national team that won the first world championship in Guangzhou, China, in 1991. And what I shared with all of the American coaches on the call is how similar that environment was to our current environment. Because back then, the United States didn't invest a dime in women's football. So what we would have is in the average year, and I was hired – In 1986, in fact, when I was hired to coach the United, uh, we had never won a game in international competition. And five years later, we were world champions. And so the story I got to tell about what happened in uh, 1986, where we didn't have a budget, we didn't have a pro league to draw players from, we didn't have any really high level leagues to draw players from, of course, with the exception of the American colleges. Uh, which have been well-organized from the beginning with excellent resources. Uh, And uh, so what we started doing, and I was sharing this to all the American coaches is I was structuring what the kids were doing in preparation for our annual international tour. And basically the athletes were training on their own. They didn't come from pro teams. And so what were their tools to basically develop themselves? Well, We developed the platform of 1v1 as the foundation for the American success. So the way we were going to try to win the first world championship, and when I was hired, we didn't know when it was going to be, but we knew that we were all fighting for this as a women's soccer culture across the world. And of course, the Norwegians and their extraordinary leadership are what rammed it through with FIFA. And I just want to publicly thank uh, that extraordinary Norwegian woman that got up as the only woman Surrounded by the men in FIFA and basically demanded that we have a Women's World Championship. We are indebted to the Scandinavians for being so aggressive early in the development of our game. But what I'm trying to share with the American coaches is they have an opportunity during the pandemic to develop their players the way we did for that first Women's World Cup. So find a wall, play 1v1, get fit on your own. And the way we had to pick our players is they had to come in fit. We didn't have an opportunity to get them fit. And so basically in my first camp as U.S. Women's National Coach, I sent out a training platform which had sections on ball mastery, wall work, and 1v1. And I told them on the first practice when they came in, they had to be fit. And if they weren't fit, we were sending them home. And sure enough, they came in on a Sunday. Uh, They recovered that night. The next uh, morning, we had a fitness test. One girl failed, Uh, at the end of that session, I had one of my managers collect her uh, stuff from practice in a van, drove her back to the motel. She packed and left the motel and in the van, this manager took her to the airport and we sent her home. In my entire coaching career with the US full national team, no player has ever come in unfit again because it was a very simple statement that was made, and all of a sudden, the message was sent. But the other platform that was critical for us is 1v1, because since we didn't have the opportunity to develop some sort of extraordinary possessional platform, we were training the American players to basically be duelers. And the way the Americans duel is we kept talking about every single player in every roster that we're gonna pick has to have the ability to beat players off the dribble and stop players off the dribble. And we were going to be fit as absolute hell, and we were going to press for 90 minutes, and uh, basically a 1-3-4-3, three, three, which, in my opinion, is the best system to press from. Uh, and we were just going to go after teams all over the world by pressing, by beating them off the dribble. Uh, and we weren't going to do what the classic great international teams at the time were doing, which was playing the classic 4-4-2, where, you know, you have a, a low line of confrontation because, of course, you can't press for 90 minutes. It's physically impossible. So there's no way a woman's coach back in those days would press because of how exhausting it is. So they would have a line of confrontation, maybe on the tangent of the center circle or maybe halfway between that spot and the top of the D, and that's when they would uh, pick us up, uh, and, but not our team. If the other team had the ball on their own corner flag, we were pressing it there. And we went after them like sharks with blood in the water. And why could we do this? Because we were fit as absolute hell. And then we would go after them. And when we won the ball, did we sort of play the ball back and play it around in our defensive third for, you know, a half an hour to demonstrate how extraordinary we were in possession when there was no pressure on us anyway? No. We got the ball forward as fast as possible. We gave it to one of our 1V artists, and she would start carving. And then we would go right to goal. And so we would alternate in our national team camps between a fitness test the morning after they got there and a 1v1 tournament. And the girls knew this. And so what did every girl do wherever she was? She trained 1v1. And what was interesting is the players that our girls trained 1v1 with mostly were not other girls. They were basically with their boyfriends. And who were these girls dating? Well, most of them were dating elite male soccer players. Karen Jennings, who won the gold ball at the first Women's World Championship in 1991, was dating Jim Gaber, the captain of the U.S. futsal team. They played 1v1 all the time. Why did Karen win the golden ball at that event? Not just because of her goals, but because she could carve anyone off the dribble. Well, every one of my girls were really good 1v1. If you look at that original team that won in 1991, of the kids in the front seven, six were take on artists. We only had one girl that would rather pass the ball than dribble through you. And that was Shannon Higgins. But the right wing, April Heinrichs, would go through you like you were dead. Michelle Akers, what many people consider one of the greatest players of all time could also beat you off the dribble or just beat you to death physically, because she's just a a monster of a woman. The left wing was Karen Jennings. The right midfielder was Mia Hamm, and I'm sure that name resonates with anyone that understands 1v1. The left midfielder was Christine Lilly. The attacking center half was Julie Foudy. All six of those young women were great off the dribble. Shannon Higgins was the only one that would look to pass it before she would look to dribble. And so that philosophy became basically who we were as a U.S. full national team. This is what I was sharing on all the podcasts with all the coaches in the United States during the pandemic. Have your players live on a wall. Because here's the other thing I learned when I was doing color commentating for the first women's pro league in the United States. All of a sudden it was one of those eureka moments. And uh, this was really interesting. The leading score on every team in the pro league only had one quality in common with all of her leading scoring uh, colleagues on all the other teams. And that was the capacity to knock the absolute snot out of the soccer ball. Because here's what's interesting about the challenge for a female goalkeeper. First of all, she's not as big as a male goalkeeper, and her hands are smaller. She doesn't have the same vertical jump, and yet she's defending a goal designed for men to defend. So here's the way most women would score with power. They would smash it on the frame somewhere and with great power and occasionally with accuracy would end up in the back of the net. And so people would debate me on this because it goes, oh, no, no, no. The the leading score is invariably the best take on artists. But no, there were some girls that were the leading scores in their teams that weren't very good off the dribble. But when they got a hold of the ball and hit it on frame, it went right through the goalkeeper because of power. So getting back to what I was saying earlier, work on a wall with both feet. Smash the ball with such power with both feet that if you're a defender, your range is gonna be extraordinary. But if you're in the attacking half and you shoot with power on frame in a women's game, it's got a real opportunity to get in. So uh, these are the things we were sharing and I was sharing it on every Zoom podcast across the United States. And then what was interesting, after they had heard me on one, They all asked me the same series of questions because they wanted me to talk about the 91ers and how that team was developed. They were developed in effect during a pandemic, but was it a pandemic? No, it was basically an economic pandemic. We didn't have the resources and money to get these players together. So what did they have to do? They didn't have professional teams to play on. They had to train on their own. So it was about 1v1. It was about wall work. It was about being fit is absolutely hell and it was about ball mastery. And these are all things you can do on your own.
0: Fascinating, Anson, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by, by the stories uh, and the description. Uh, I think you probably already answered this, but I kind of wrote down as you were talking, well, did you get the success for, for that team of 91? Was it by design or was it built on the constraints of people being isolated within the way that they trained?
1: I would love to pretend, you know, that it was by design, but it wasn't. And here's what was interesting for me. We all have to develop our teams within the context of our own cultures. And uh, so we didn't have a European model to follow, uh, because the top teams in the world back in the uh, uh, mid eighties and early nineties were basically uh, the Northern European teams. And so basically the Scandinavians, the Norwegians were extraordinary. The Swedes were incredibly good. uh, The Danes were very good. The Germans were good. The further north you went in Europe, the better the teams were. The only exception to that was Italy. Italy also had an extraordinary women's culture uh, back early in the day. And what I really loved about this last World Cup, honestly, Tom, was watching Italy play. Because holy cow, have they returned. And even though, you know, people that don't really follow the women's game and watch the games closely wouldn't see this. But with the exception of their ability to beat people off the dribble and finish the attacking third, that Italian team was absolutely magnificent to watch. So Southern uh, Europe has now returned to the fore in the women's game. Obviously, the Spaniards are starting to invest in the women's game. And so I think what we'll start to see is across the board, the Europeans are going to be very good top to bottom. But back in our day, it was uh, uh, a northern uh, uh, European teams. And so, but back then, we didn't really have the opportunity to watch the Europeans play. Uh, The games weren't televised, certainly. We didn't play enough tournaments to really study them. Um, So what did we have to do? And looking back, it was so wonderful for us. We developed our own culture. And it was different because we didn't play like anyone else. Everyone back then was in a 4-4-2. Everyone had a lower line of confrontation and we were absolutely opposite. We were a one, three, four, three high pressing team. Uh, And that I think made all the difference in the world for us, because what we did is we forced every team to adjust to us and we did not have to adjust to anyone. And as anyone that has coached for an extended period can appreciate, if you're the team that's doing the adjusting, you're at a disadvantage and we never adjusted. We reached out, grabbed the other team by the throat, and tried to squeeze the air out of them. And it made all the difference in the world because most teams were so accustomed to being able to develop the ball out of the back. And they were so accustomed to probing into midfield and then sending a runner into midfield to create numbers up in a zone in midfield, and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We never let them uh, do that. Not for one second were they able to do that. And we were winning the ball you know, sort of like Liverpool, you know, the modern uh, men's Liverpool does. We were winning so many balls in the attacking third and the attacking half and going straight to goal uh, that it just separated us. Um, And for years, uh, I was criticized for our style of play and everything else. And what I absolutely love, I'm not dead yet, and I get to see, you know, Jorgen Klopp uh, do the same thing with his Liverpool team on the men's side. And of course, back in the day, they were all saying, well, you can't do this at an international level. You can't do this in the men's game. Why? Because the men are too skillful. You can't press in the men's game. They can get out of any kind of trouble. So why even bother? And so what I absolutely love is to have lived long enough to see that the ideas that we were doing, you know, back in the day are now vogue at the highest level of the men's game. And that's so satisfying for me because, holy cow, the abuse I've gotten over the years for playing this, you know, frantic, you know, <laughs> pressure game has uh, just, you know, uh, all the soccer snobs, you know, sort of look down on, you know, any team that's work works hard, it seems until now, because now it's becoming vogue um, um, on the men's side as well, which, by the way, I love.
0: Talk, talking about culture and, and really thinking about I guess the, the technical principles of how you've wanted your teams to play with that, that high press and and high intensity. I love that term of phrase you used a moment ago around kind of just squeezing every last breath at the opposition. To, to play in that way takes some physical kind of quality and attributes from from your playing team. And also, I, I would imagine some real, from, from a psychological perspective, that that doggedness to keep trying and to keep battling and to keep working hard. How... How have you established that culture within your your squads that that players are willing to do that on a regular basis and to to almost work hard for each other on and off the ball?
1: Something that's very undervalued uh, in the culture of women's athletics is the responsibility all of us have that coach women to get them to embrace competition. Because here's what's interesting. Uh, Any sociologist will tell you this, and obviously I'm not familiar with all the uh, cultures across the face of the earth on the women's side, but it's really interesting in the American culture. So let me address that because I certainly know more about my culture than the rest of the world's. But what's really interesting in the way we raise our young girls is we raise them to basically acquiesce and to genuflect. And the way we raise our young boys in the United States is we put them on pedestals when they're competitive. And what the heck is that all about? Why are boys and young men and men in general praised for being competitive as hell and women and girls are excoriated for it? What happens when a young woman enters our environment at the University of North Carolina or entered my environment when I was the U.S. women's uh, full national team coach. We embrace competition. We celebrate the competitors. And then everything is a competition. At the University of North Carolina right now, we have 28 different competitive categories that our athletes compete in. And the day after every single practice on a bulletin board, everyone is ranked in the categories. Now, do you address all 28 categories in every practice? Of course not. Sometimes uh, a competitive category occurs once a season, like a fitness test. So we have a beep category. Every kid has to get a certain amount on the beep, and that category stays up there the entire fall. That's a part of the competitive cauldron. We also, with laser uh, timers, we time their speed. We've got an acceleration time. We've got a meters per second time. We've got a vertical jump on them. We've got an agility time on them. We've got all these different athletic components But we also have soccer components every time they play a 4v4 or 5v5 6v6 7v7 8v8 9v9 10v10 even 11v11 if they win or lose in the game they have a winning percentage and that's a matter of public record and so every single aspect of every practice including 1v1 battles and we have five different one-on-one games that we play where you play everybody on the team 1v1 in all these different categories it's all a matter of public record. <clears throat> what ends up happening in that environment for these young women, they are trained in competing. And one of my favorite lines from Lucy Bronze on the podcast uh, that I'm gonna ask you to promote shamelessly, Tom, is she said, you know, after she finished up with us here at UNC, she went back to England to play professionally And some of the coaches that she started playing for initially would walk up to her in the middle of practice and have her try to calm down a little because she was intimidating all of her teammates in practice and she was discouraging them. Why was she discouraging them? Because she was beating them to death in practice, which is the way she was trained at the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And then her classic line was, it was driving her nuts and then she said something in the effect of and I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was something in the effect of, you know, and coach, that's why we suck, you know, because you won't allow these girls to understand that this is a game all about competition. Uh, So uh, I loved uh, hearing Lucy, you know, come from a culture that embraced it to a culture that didn't as much. And obviously the game has totally changed now across the UK. So that certainly isn't the case anymore. But this was an evolution. It was an evolution in uh, the women's game. It was an evolution in changing uh, the culture of uh, competitive women, embracing them, uh, putting them on a pedestal like we do for our men. And that's something that I think has to be consciously trained. We consciously train it with this tool that we call the competitive cauldron. The first book I wrote, uh, Training Soccer Champions, introduces the cauldron The second book I wrote, The Vision of a Champion, goes into even greater depth in the cauldron. And then The Man Watching, a book written by Tim Carruthers, is a book about our culture. He talks about the elements of how we create competition and how we create competition yet still have extraordinary team chemistry. And that's the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is how do you compete uh, like there's no tomorrow with extraordinary aggression and still remain positive and close because that's the biggest challenge in uh, training an elite women's team. Uh, So that's uh, the thing that we've been able to navigate. Um, And I know uh, Tom, that doesn't directly answer your question, but I wanted to reach back and just share that tool because that tool has been transformational in every culture I've coached. And even now it's sort of interesting when you look at the United States, there are teams out there that are better technically than we are. The Japanese are better technically, the French are better technically. There are teams out there that are better tactically. I think uh, the English are better tactically, the Germans are better tactically, the Dutch are better tactically. But there's one quality the rest of the world just hasn't caught up with yet. And what's that quality? Why is it so difficult even now to play the United States? And people say, well, you know, the athleticism. Yeah, we've got some great athletes, but the French are equally athletic and they were playing in their home country. So we can't sort of you know use that uh, as the primary uh, reason. The thing that separates the United States and the best person to talk to about this is Pia Sundaga, because she comes from an extraordinary culture in Sweden where she was one of the best players in the world back in the day. So she certainly knew the game. She came into our culture and certainly helped us progress as a national team coach, teaching us so many wonderful principles that she knew. Uh, as an extraordinary uh, coach but the one quality she celebrated she didn't understand it but she celebrated it in the American players when she was coaching the US full national team was our extraordinary capacity to win that's not an accident that is trained into the culture I coached the US women for eight years we trained in culture so when any player comes into the US full national team They are trained in this quality, just like every 17-year-old that comes into my culture here at UNC are trained into that as well. And it all comes down to the competitive cauldron.
0: The the one thing I'm I'm curious about many things talking to you, but the the one thing that's really kind of standing out in front of me around this competitive cauldron and what it can do for for the players in your team what what role do you play within there so when when practice is taking place or while the players are getting ready or walking off from the from the pitch after after practice what 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 do you bring to that environment as a coach that supports the players but stretches them at the same time
1: well of course as any coach will tell you and it's you know with uh, what you're doing with this podcast and the number of extraordinary, Uh, people that you've spoken to about uh, the game itself. Uh, A coach brings his own personality to the training environment, but also to the pitch during matches. And oftentimes uh, the players are a reflection of that coach. Uh, And I know you guys right now are really enjoying what I'm enjoying. Uh, Bielsa is a soccer genius. I mean, for him to have, you know, basically no real money to spend And yet he takes, you know, Liverpool right to the edge of their game, uh, where I think the average salary, one salary at Liverpool might pay for his entire roster. So we all know the talent that Liverpool has, and yet Bielsa can still figure out ways to compete. Um, He brings something special to that environment. He brings it to his training environments. He brings it to the way his teams play. I have studied that man uh, for a long time. And I've benefited from it uh, because I think he does things uh, just in an extraordinary way. I'm so happy he and Leeds are in the uh, uh, premiership now. Um, (laughs) This is so funny. Uh, There were so many women's games on over the weekend and so many EPL games. I just watched one. I picked Leeds. I didn't have enough time because we had our own games this weekend to watch all the games. So I picked his game because I'm never going to miss watching him uh, coach and play so we all have a personality that personality basically is uh sort of injected uh verbally uh with emotion with uh i guess language with your capacity to communicate in all kinds of different ways back when i was young uh, and I, a lot of people will support this uh and a lot of people identify with this uh, um i was a uh, uh an aggressive captain when I, uh, I was the captain for my men's team at North Carolina. If someone wasn't working, they heard from me immediately. If someone wasn't focused, they heard from me immediately. And it wasn't a gentle reminder to focus or to work hard. I would rip into them aggressively, uh, you know, like any classic, uh, you know, alpha captain. Um, and, uh, and I basically walked my talk. I was very aggressive on the field. Uh, and that's the way basically uh, I I played. And then when I became a men's coach, that's the conduit I coached through. But then of course, um, for all of us, there's an evolution in your coaching style. And, and eventually, you know, that clearly doesn't work after a while. And so then your communication has to change a bit. But still the things you're emphasizing and training, I think make all the difference in the world. And here's the thing that we emphasize. And we met, we talk to this, uh, to the team about this all the time. If you, Decide not to defend for one second. And I don't care if you're the nine or the two or the three. If you're not defending for one second, you're off. And here's, what's really cool about the women's game at a collegiate level in the United States, we have free substitution. I can sub down to, you know, in the regular season, an unlimited number of players. There's no re-entry in the first half. There's one re-entry in the second. So here's what every player knows. If they look over on the sideline and they're, substitute is warming up that means they skipped one second of defending somewhere and they're off you got to defend if you don't defend in my system the whole system collapses because we're going to high press you can't high press with one player low pressing because then the gap's going to be through the low pressing area and then you're going to be shredded so that's the one thing we absolutely require is that everyone is pressing and because of the wonderful free substitution rules that we have in the United States, I play a deep roster. My ambition in every game is to try to play 22 players a game. So I have a reserve unit that comes in basically as the starters fatigue. And the demarcation line for uh, a superior player fatigued is if an inferior player fresh is better. And obviously I don't have any metrics or, you know, stat review to tell me, when the starter is fading, obviously I'm eyeballing it. And then if I, you know, obviously if the starter fails to defend you know, and doesn't sprint one time they're off and then the reserve comes in and it has a two positive effect. It motivates the starter to kill themselves in every minute of every game, but it also gives the, the reserve an opportunity to know that uh, if they play well, they're going to steal starting minutes and maybe eventually end up starting themselves. So we have all these cross currents within our culture, sort of feeding uh, all the different elements that we think have value uh, within the uh, team performances and the individual performances. And the other huge advantage of the cauldron, which is wonderful and I think undervalued, is the feedback every player gets. I try to keep a roster between 26 and 30. I don't have time to speak to all 30 players every day but my managerial staff and my analytics staff have no issue putting up the results the next day in the cauldron. Every single girl before practice begins sort of walks by the bulletin board just to see where she is in all 28 different categories. So I don't really have to be, I guess, extraordinarily motivational. Uh, The data does it for me, Uh, but also when they're playing in a match itself, uh, they know that the, at an absolute minimum, they're defending. So that's also delivered to us as well because of the nature of our culture.
0: I, again, re- really interesting answer, Anson. And um, I think the clarity that you're able to share, I think is really important for coaches that that actually, by using some of the context of the data that you're training in, actually provides half of the message for the players and, Uh, From experience, perhaps coaching myself, well, actually, we don't necessarily have all the data to hand on individual performances within practice and with games, but actually a player doesn't need to be told if they've made an error. They can recognize that for themselves and then make amendments. And I guess some of the things we, we talk about with some of the coaches we support is trying to catch people in rather than trying to just catch people out. So to go and reinforce all the positive things that you really want to emphasize and bring out. But actually, this data will highlight that and, and help help people along that journey with you.
1: Yes, uh, but please know that <clears throat> whenever I see something that's extraordinary, I always point it out, <clears throat> and the team celebrates it. in fact, uh, right after the warm up, uh, all of us are using GPS data, and so what I do with my GPS data right after the warm up is my uh, analytics uh, uh, director hands me a small piece of paper, and the reason he does this and by the way. Tom, he was the one that w- in full panic was making sure I was on this call with you. Cause I, <laughs> he, uh, he is a, a techno wizard and I am, uh, you know, I was born in 1951, so I'm not comfortable with any of my devices or with the computer I'm looking at right now. And he's an expert, but what he's really good uh, for me is he hands me this piece of paper on it <clears throat> in the six different categories that are GPS measures. I read off the top three names from the previous practice, and I read them off. If the last thing we did was a game, I read them off from the game. So distance covered, high speed running, HML uh, distance, which is in effect uh, uh, how often you're changing directions, accelerations, decelerations, uh, sprints, and I read off the top three. <clears throat> and the, basically after I read off the top three, everyone on the team claps twice, so you know, All right, uh, high speed running, you know, Pinto, uh, Brown, uh, Jones, they clap twice. And so we just go through all of those players and I'm telling these kids that, you know, you better be popping up in the top three in every practice in these categories, because you can. This is an athletic ability. This is decision-making. How much you cover in a practice and in a game is up to you. And if your name never appears, Uh, You're on some sort of extended vacation. And so we talk about this on a regular basis. And then I said, if you appear more than once in these six categories, top three, it's extraordinary. And every now and again, a girl will be in five out of the six. And we celebrate it. We talk about it. Uh, And then obviously, if a girl has an extraordinary practice. And I always measure things based on, uh, you know, the best I've ever seen them play. Uh, And I always sort of make it a public announcement when a kid uh, has all of a sudden fought their way into playing time or fought their way into the starting lineup or scored their first goal or got their first assist. We are celebrating all of these uh, moments uh, for these uh, uh, these women. And it's genuinely celebrated. I mean, uh, if you've got good chemistry on their team, they certainly celebrate that reserve that just has never played a minute and all of a sudden gets in for the first time in months and then plays well. They genuinely uh, support her and celebrate her. And the girl feels it. And we all feel so good for her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So please don't think that, you know, this is a bloodless, you know, ranking of performances and practice. No, this is a collection of kids that love training with each other, that have ambitions to play uh, in the Olympics and to play for world championships. In fact, one of my favorite moments in this last World Cup is one of the commentators came on the air right after we had won and said of the four world championship teams that the United States has won from the beginning, going back to 1991, one out of three players was trained at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. One out of three were trained in the competitive cauldrons of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I, I I was not aware of that because I would never done the math, but I absolutely loved it uh, because these, all these women, the women that select to come and play here, have the ambition of playing the best. And one thing I am so excited about is uh, I had three wonderful uh, uh, Brits uh, that, because of the pandemic, uh, came into our preseason, and then because we didn't have a national championship this fall, uh, we just have an ACC championship. I met which each of the three of them. And recommended they go back to england and sign pro contracts even though obviously these are phenomenal players and having them uh, not with us is making us a lot weaker but what this statement made to them but also all the players we're recruiting but all the players on my roster is my priority are these kids and so sure enough alessia russo uh, signed uh, with manchester united uh, and she had her first english cap uh, with phil neville which I am so proud of uh, last February with the English full team. Uh, Lata Wubin-Moy signed with the Arsenal. Uh, And then I just got this great text today uh, from Lois Joel, who just signed her contract today with West Ham. And so these are three seniors that that I just love to death that are now on their journey at a professional level uh, in the FA uh, Women's Super League, and I'm just so proud of them. And so these are also statements about where these girls want to go. They all want to play at the highest level and we want to create a culture that helps take them there, but we also want them to have fun. And at the end of it, we want them to have a degree from a internationally known uh, university. Uh, So that's uh, uh, what we're trying to do for these extraordinary kids. And also of course, the English camp is coming up soon. So uh, obviously with quarantine issues, I didn't want those kids not to be able to go into the English full team camp. So the best Solution, send them home. Have them sign contracts. Let them get in uh, with uh, Phil and see if they have a, a shot at that uh, Olympic roster with him.
0: Without a shadow of a doubt, Anson, um, the to celebrate success at practice with, with, with a double clap is something I'm adopting from this evening and, and therefore <laughs> the rest, of, rest of my coaching days.
1: Oh, Tom, <laughs> i got to show this with you. At first, it's very clunky because they get the timing <laughs> off. So you've got to be patient. And if they don't do it properly, you say, that wasn't good enough. And then you read it off again. And then, then the clap becomes powerful and energetic. So this will take some practice, Tom. This is, uh, this is, uh, yeah.
0: I'll, I'll send you some audio, Answer, when we have it to a T. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, look, thank you so much for sharing everything that you have today. Um, it's been fascinating listening. Uh, if you don't mind, I've got a couple of quick questions just, just to finish this off. Um. I spoke to a couple of, of coaching friends before before the call um who who suggested some some kind of questions to ask so um, the first one is threefold um, so I'll read you all three parts to it before before I let you answer um so what what one principle have you stuck to in your coaching from day one which principle maybe did you start with when you were coaching and then subsequently dropped and then from there what most recent principle have you added to your way of coaching?
1: Okay, you might have to remind me of these questions. That's because of my age, you know, things get eliminated quickly from my brain. The one thing we embraced from the beginning was pressing and competition. And again, that gets back to my discussion about Bielsa and that we all coach through uh, our own natures. And I think if you look at all the coaches that are out there, we all, most effectively coached through our own natures, which is why we can't imitate other people. So I think that's been with me from the beginning pressing and competition. The thing that I was once absolutely married to, but dropped interestingly ties into uh, the answer I just gave you. In the old days, I was absolutely married to the 1343. In the 91 World Championship, Uh, The 1-3-4-3 was a deep sweeper, two marking backs, because everyone played a 4-4-2. It was so simple to... uh, And I know the advantages of uh, a marking back system, because then if this girl is particularly fast, I would put my fastest marking back on her. And so I would win that matchup. And then if this particular uh, player was good in the air, I'd put my best header on her. So there's a certain advantage in playing this two marking backs for the sweeper, and I exploited that advantage. So th- I was married to that. Eventually I saw the way the game was evolving that we needed compaction. So then the deep sweeper had to go. So the first sort of wrinkle change I had to make was this understanding that if I play with a deep sweeper, a smarter coach is gonna mark my sweeper. They're gonna have all kinds of space to play in. And without compaction, I'm gonna kill my front line and my midfielders. They're gonna be doubling back the whole game because I don't have compaction. And so I learned that relatively early. I'm trying to think of what year we made the change, but all of a sudden at halftime of a game that I wasn't very happy with watching, I switched from a one, three, four, three with a deep sweeper and two marking backs to a semi flat back one, three, four, three with compaction. I was able to do that because of a center back by the name of Nell Fedick, who was a tactical genius. She was my deep sweeper and I wasn't working uh, because they were marking her. They were very smart. We had no compaction. So here's what we did. We had Nell play a, a basically a, a flat line and now we had compaction and we basically our principle from then on was the distance between the center back and the center forward is uh, uh, 30 yards. And then they've only got one choice. The other team, while we're pressing them, the only way they're going to succeed is by smashing a ball over the top. And Nell read the game so well, she would beat anyone in that space behind her because she knew what everyone was going to do. Uh, the goalkeeper also played a high line, so we had a keeper sweeper. Uh, and then we had Fedig that organized this back line. From then on, we played that system forever. I was married to the one 3, four, three. Now I'm not. And the reason I was married to it is because, in my opinion, it's the best system to press out of. It is so simple to press out of a semi flatback, one, three, four, three. And any team that plays a four back, uh, if you press effectively, they're going to cough up, up some balls in their defensive third and defensive half if you do it well. Um, so I was married to that, and now I'm not. Now, uh, if we look at the last four or five years, we've played uh, a 1433 we have played a 1-2-3-1, uh, which by the way, we played in the last half of the game on Sunday. Uh, we started that game in a one-four-one-three-two, And so now what we're trying to do is to take advantage of uh, our personnel. <clears throat> and even though we don't press as well, out of uh these new systems that we're uh experimenting with uh we have a better attack and the players are more comfortable in the positions we assign them. Uh so uh <clears throat> that's the change and then uh Tom what was the th- uh, third uh, uh question you had?
0: Third part was what, what what's the most recent principle you you've added to your way of coaching?
1: I am a huge fan of uh, Raymond Verhan. Uh who runs the World Football Academy? And um, <clears throat> in the old days, all of my fitness platforms were done with a clock, because of course you can't hide from a clock. And uh, all of my <laughs> previous players are so upset that the modern player isn't tortured to death with the clock like I used to torture all of them. In fact, they're saying things like I'm getting soft, and you know, you know, all the criticism we all get when a former player comes back uh, and they see something different. So anyway, so uh, we're now using uh, Raymond Verhain's periodization model. And I think it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, The players are enjoying practice more. Uh, We're still fit as we can be. And I think we're developing our players better because uh, uh, he does this rotation between 11v11s, 7v7s, and 4v4s that address all the different engines that you have to prime and spike Uh, in order to get your players effectively fit. And I'm also married to his philosophy of not having a preseason where your whole idea is to beat everyone to death and injure half your roster, uh, but to try to figure out a way to gradually get the players fitter at the sacrifice, perhaps, of early fitness uh, with the ultimate reward of keeping them all healthy. Uh, So I've learned a lot from him. He is a personal mentor of mine. Every time I go back to uh, one of his... uh, uh academies uh i learn a hell of a lot and i just have huge admiration for uh everything he's doing to try to help all of us become more and more effective uh, uh football coaches and so uh uh he's sort of changed up uh, our fitness philosophy in a very good way uh and uh i owe him uh, an extraordinary debt and by the way uh when i watched the uh japan uh korea um world cup is when i became a fan obviously goose hiddick was the uh coach of the South Koreans, but I couldn't imagine a team being fitter than that. And so I had his, I had his um, image in mind of how his team played. And of course, they didn't have one player playing in Europe and they finished in the top four in the world, basically with fitness playing our system, playing the one, three, four, three. So uh, that was something I studied back in the day. And then when I learned that he was the fitness guy, I started jumping into his stuff. And so uh, I've learned a lot from uh, uh, Raymond.
0: Brilliant. Fantastic. Final question, if that's all right. And then and then I'll uh, I'll let you go. Um, where, where does uh, where does risk live for you in, in the way that you approach your coaching? Risk. In terms of trying new things, trying out new stuff, always um, having a go at things that maybe you haven't tried before.
1: Yeah, Tom, that's an excellent question. Here's our dilemma. <clears throat> We've been so consistently successful. You almost don't want to mess with success. And so I've been married to a lot of things, um, changing more often, but because of our success, you're almost reluctant to, cause you don't know, you know, which piece in your alchemy is what turned the season or the team into gold. And so, you know, and the old alchemists that were trying to, you know, mix lead and, you know, who knows what else into this mixture to try to create gold. <clears throat> we were creating gold consistently. And so I was reluctant to play anything but the semi-flatback 1343. Three. I was reluctant to, you know, do this, that, and the other thing. I was reluctant to change this in practice. I was reluctant, you know, to not have my fitness on a clock. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that's uh, that's the uh, the dilemma with uh, the, with success because the game is evolving, Tom. And if we're not changing with it and if we're not learning something every year, to inject into our training environments, to try to make ourselves and our players better, we're gonna fall behind. And I think uh, that's uh, the challenge for me. And one thing that uh, I've benefited from extraordinarily uh, is my own staff. I hired a a soccer genius by the name of uh, Damon Nahas. Uh, He was coaching youth teams in Raleigh, uh, coaching the U.S. youth national teams, He was the U15 National Youth Coach of the United States. Every time I watched his team's play, I was just stunned at their level. Um, And so I've been working on trying to hire him forever. Uh, He's finally joined me, uh, and he's been just a breath of fresh air. He's brought in new ideas, and I love his ideas. And then we hired Heather O'Reilly, which is why, Tom, you and I are connected, Uh, a former player of mine that lives just down the hill from uh, our stadium and right next to our practice fields and having Heather in practice. I mean, if you know Heather at all, I mean, my gosh, she's just a ball of positivity. And when she says something, every player listens. Why? Because the number of trophies that she has won, even one she's won in the last year, you know, winning the uh, NWSL championship, the professional championship in the United States, her uh, resume is just extraordinary. And she still has enough life in her legs to jump into practice and, you know, embarrass some of these kids. Um, And she's just she's just a joy uh, to be with. And so uh, um, I think that's been also uh, uh, transformational for me because I am getting older. So I'm turning uh, my sessions over to uh, uh, Damon and Heather. And I get to, you know, you know, walk around uh, with gravitas like uh, Ferguson. And I'm trying to, you know, watch films of Ferguson in practice to see if I can affect his growl. Uh, I, I don't think I can get anywhere near his his hair dryer effect, uh, but uh, I'm a pretty good actor. You know, I need some footage. If you have it for me, I send it to me. I want to see what Ferguson looks like in a typical practice. I want to have that gravitas to walk past a 5 v 2 and have the level raise just because I glanced in that direction for half a second. So. Uh, Send me some footage so uh, I can uh, I can be part of my coaching platform.
0: That's that's the legendary level a lot of us are aiming for, but it's a long way off. That 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 sounds like the, yeah, absolutely. If I find some footage, it's coming your, your way, Anson. Thank you. Um, Anson, thank you so much for your time for, for the last hour or so and in, in, in talking as openly and honestly as you have. It's been, been a privilege to talk to you.
1: Well, Tom, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Join us at ukcoaching.org.
0: Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.